This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Early voting started in Florida this week and there have been long lines outside polling places as people wait to cast their ballots in this year's presidential election. Already turnout is high and the number of people voting by mail is up as well. The election falls as the country faces twin crises, an ongoing pandemic and an economic recession. And against those threats, the spectre of civil unrest and political instability looms. Well, this week on our Facebook Live show, The State We're In, we delved into some of the issues facing voters this election season. Today we're going to listen back to part of that show. Host Bradley George talks with a first-time voter, Dwayne Ron Sharp, about what's on his mind and questions he has leading into this election. Also joining the show, WMFE's Abe Abariah, who discusses political polarisation, ballot amendments and disinformation in 2020. The State We're In is part of a special collaboration between WMFE and our partner station at the other end of the I-4 corridor, WUSF. Let's take a listen. For the past year, our newsrooms have been covering this monumental presidential election from the I-4 corridor, one of the most important voting regions in the entire country. We're spending time focused on how the election affects your life. We've been sharing the facts about voting, and tonight... We're going to have a conversation with a young voter, a first-time young voter, who will share their thoughts on uh, the presidential election and the other races on the ballot. And we also are going to answer some of your questions uh, that you might have here in uh, the final days of the election. Joining me tonight are Dwayne Ron Sharp. He is a student at St. Petersburg College. And I'm also joined by my colleague from WMFE in Orlando, Abe Abariah. Dwayne Ron, Abe, thanks to both of you. No problem. Good to be here. Uh, Dwayne, Ron, I'm going to start with you. Um, I mentioned you're a student at, uh, at SPC. You're a first-time voter. Tell us a little bit more about, uh, about yourself and, uh, and what's important to you. I, um, again, first-time voter. This is going to be the first election I'll, I'll participate in and, um, by extension, pay the most attention to, the most in-depth attention to. Um, I've been in the country for, for a few years, and while I've I've seen um, the political platforms of both parties, I've never taken a, a deeper look up until this point. And I still don't think I have everything completely grasped. So I'm hoping that while we're having this conversation, I'll be able to pick up on little things and make some notes as we go along. So uh, where, where did you uh, move to the U.S. from? Uh, Jamaica. Okay. Um, and you said that there's still some things that uh, about the political process or about the political parties and their platforms that are that are unclear to you. Is there anything in particular that uh, that you still have questions about at this point? Why does it have to be such an us versus them? I think it's that that's my main thing. My main my, my main overall question, my umbrella question is why is it a an us versus them when I'm um, taking a look at it from an outside standpoint? It's the Dems versus the Republicans, and it seems like the most affected party is the American people. So I'm hoping to get a better understanding as to why why is it, I guess, just a two-party system? And then um, how can we, as Americans, I can say that now, how can we as Americans um, kind of hold our leaders more accountable, regardless of what party you're affiliated with, how would you be able to um, hold our leaders more accountable? So what, um, what issues specifically are important to you in this election? Um, race issues, the uh, equality issues that we've been facing, especially recently. Um, the education as well, because I've noticed, um, I have friends that are teachers and they tell me every so often, I, or I'll see on the news where our budget is getting cut or they have to um, do, do more with less resources. And I kind of want to understand why that is. Why are we cutting um, programs such as education or, or um, I think one of the programs up to, be, up to be cut or was discussed is Planned Parenthood. Um, and I'm trying to understand why, because that spans more than the one issue that seems to be the, the biggest talking point. Um, so you're, you're a new citizen of the U.S. Uh, this is your first time voting. Um, what has the process been like for you just in terms of getting registered and, and getting the all, all the information that you need to make your choice? The process was fairly simple. After the ceremony, I was registered right there. I was given information on where to go 
to see, um, I was given the website links to go and see platforms and, and um, ballot information. I, w I also get a large majority of information from the people I associate with, my friends or my colleagues. Um, the issues that affect them, I, I take a look at those as well to kind of see um, if, what their side is versus what the opposite, the, the opposing side is. Um, it's still all very new to me. It's a whole new, not to be corny, but it's a whole new world for me um, as far as uh, politics goes. So I'm still getting my feet wet. I've got a, I'm just trying to take it all in right now to, to see how best I can understand it and figure out where to um, place my votes to make sure that not just me, but my community is served. So at the top of the ballot for everyone this year is, is the presidential election. Have you decided who you're going to vote for? Uh, I have. I, I don't know that my choice was made based on um, all of their politics, just because on either side, I've seen something where, where for example, Joe Biden's past uh, decisions and policies have been brought up. Um, and Trump's behavior overall has been brought up. And taking a look at both of those, I, I kind of already made my decision in my head as to what where I'm leaning towards voting. So can I ask who you're, uh, who you're gonna vote for? Oh, absolutely, uh, Mr. Biden. Right. Vice President Biden, sorry. So you're saying even though that you still had some concerns uh, with, uh, with, with Joe Biden, what, uh, what particularly in his past uh, are, are um, what was it? He was very big. I think it was for the school, not the school to prison pipeline. He signed or participated in a bill, voted for a bill that would, I think, increase the number of African American men that went to prison. I this think is that's the, I, the crime bill that you're talking. Yes, about. his his crime bill. Yes, mm -hmm. sorry, or the crime bill. Um, that's one thing, but. I don't know that I want to use that as the basis of, I won't vote for him because he did this. Um, especially watching the, his, the only debate they had, uh, I um, made up my decision also largely on their, based on their character. And over the last few years, I've seen where, even though Biden is older and he has probably a few, few health issues due to his age, he doesn't, his character doesn't strike me as a person who has malicious intent towards the people of the country. And I'm not saying um, President Trump does, but the way President Trump carries himself doesn't sit with me. He doesn't sit well with me. If you're just joining us, you're watching The State We're In on Facebook Live. I'm your host, Bradley George. We're talking about the 2020 election with uh, Dwayne Ron Sharp. He is a student at St. Petersburg College. 2020 is uh, the first election he is voting in as a United States citizen. And uh, we're also talking with uh, WMFE's Abe Abaraya, who's been, uh, been covering the 2020 race and some of the issues around uh, voting. Uh, Abe, as you hear Dwayne Ron uh, talk about how um, he's, he's kind of arrived at his choice, at least with the, with, with the presidential race. How does that fit with, with uh, voters that you've talked to? Because we talk a lot about, you know, the I-4 corridor kind of being the decisive point for Florida in terms of, uh, of uh, swing voters or, or voters who could go one way or the other. Uh, how does Dwayne Ron's experience kind of match up with what else we're hearing from, from voters around the region? Uh, th th there's a lot of, th there's a couple things in particular that, uh, Dwayne, that you said that really kind of struck out to me. Um, in particular, when you're talking about the, the issue of polarization, which is kind of what you're getting to, which is why it, it is so much of a us versus them system at this point and why it's a two-party system in the U.S. Um, I mean, we've all, as journalists, kind of seen this sort of progression over the last few years. Uh, it started uh, before President Trump was elected, but it's, it's definitely amplified in the last few years where there, there is a bit more of like a, a sports mentality and a team mentality applied to politics. And uh, frankly, that's part of the reason why we're, we're doing, trying to do projects like this, where we're focusing a little bit more on the issues and talking to people about the things that matter to them at, as a voter, um, so that it isn't necessarily covered so much as a horse race and, and who's in the lead right now and who's doing better in polling and battleground states and, you know, some of that sort of day-to-day -day trade that, that tends to become the normal 
news coverage for an election as you get closer and closer to it. The other thing too that that you said that kind of struck out to me was the the process questions as well. Um, you know, when you're looking at why there's a two party system in the U.S., I I can't imagine kind of coming into this w- without growing up with it, uh, just on the idea of like, this is, we have a two party system, there's an electoral college, you kind of get, you get that from an early age in this country. So looking back and saying, well, why don't we have a parliamentary system where, you know, where it's a different style of election, or why are there not more than two dominant parties? There aren't clear answers or good answers, I should say, on some of those questions, but it is very um, interesting to, to kind of take a fresh perspective at that. To your question, though, uh, Bradley, the issues of race have been coming up, obviously, a lot more uh, in the last six months. And so that's something that a lot of uh, voters are are looking at and are now making new decisions on um, that maybe they weren't a year ago. We're seeing that a lot more, a lot of questions about policy and attitude towards you know, issues of, of race and how the different candidates are treating those issues. You know, Abe mentioned parliamentary systems. Dwayne, you come from Jamaica. They have, that's a parliamentary style. Yeah, we have a parliamentary system. We do. We, um, we have a, what is that? Three parties and as well as um, several members of parliament for the entire island. Um, just like governors here, they're responsible for making sure the constituents are taken care of. Um, roads are fixed, anything like that is maintained. Um, here, as a child, I thought here would, would have been a bigger, grander system where everything was ran a bit more smoothly. Um, and that was one of the things I came to find out was not that dissimilar from Jamaica. Um, but I always wondered why. Why wasn't there some kind of, not necessarily expansion, but um, attempt to see if there was a different route that could be used or pursued to govern the country to see if that would work any better. Yeah, and I think too another thing, you, kind of getting back to the process. You know, if you're voting in a parliamentary system in a parliamentary election, you know, you've got one choice on the ballot. Usually, you're voting for a candidate, or you're voting for a party, or maybe you're voting for a candidate and a party, depending right. on the system. Here, you've got all kinds of choices to make on the ballot, right? From president to Congress to judges. Uh, there are constitutional amendments as well. Um, have you had a chance yet, Dwayne, to look at to kind of look at the ballot and look at the other races and and uh, and make choices about those? I have not taken any deep look at it. I've seen the presidential ballot. I've seen the VP ballot. Um, a few. I took a glance at the ballot for the area I'm voting in Largo, but I did not spend any great deal of time um, analyzing it, no. Well, I wanted to ask you, Dwayne, too, where have you been finding information on some of the these, particularly the down ballot races that maybe aren't getting as much uh, coverage? You know, what what's worked well for you trying to find that, that information and, and what maybe kind of pitfalls have you run into with it? Uh, speaking to more, more of my politically inclined friends who are more plugged in than I am, because I do not, I make it a, a point to not follow politics very closely, but um, speaking to my friends, they'll give me gems of information. They'll tell me what has happened, what hasn't happened, who hasn't been, not necessarily performing, but what areas are under uh, more scrutiny. I guess it, it's been a minute as well since I've spoken to them because as we're getting closer, they are getting more um, more heavily involved. So they have been kind of radio silent. Do you follow the news regularly? Do you? I, I listen to the news in the morning. In the morning I do. Um, when I get um, I, some downtime at work, I'll try to, to read a few articles online to see if I'm missing anything. I usually don't get very far because the phone rings or someone sends me an email. I try to, to pay as much attention as I can. Unfortunately, it's just not very much. So it sounds like your friends are pretty kind of plugged in politically with what's going on. Would you say so, that's yeah, true of, would you say that's true of, of most of your uh, uh, SBC classmates? Are they, are they really paying attention to politics this year? Not all of them. Not all of them. Most of the students that I see, uh, you have your mix, you have the, the, Heavily, heavily politically leaning, um, some who are more aloof and some who just don't care for it either way. Not everyone is going to vote. I have professors who always tell me, make sure you vote, make sure you tell your friends to vote. And then I hear people, I hear students say, 
I'm not going to vote. It doesn't make any sense. My voice doesn't matter. And then I think to myself in my head, how many times has that been said? How many hundreds of thousands, of millions of times across the country has that been said? Um, and then no change is made. And that for them solidifies their reasoning as to this is why I don't vote because it doesn't make sense. And I imagine that's going to hit you in a different way, right? Because you're, <laughs> you're a new citizen, right? And this is like, this is one of the fundamental rights of being an American is being able to, to have that voice in decision-making being cast a ballot. So what, what do you say to somebody who says, ah, oh, my voice, my vote doesn't matter. I look at them, ask them what's the matter with them and then try to try to see where they're at. If it's a case where I can at least uh, persuade them with the logic of, um, an extra voice is an extra voice. I just say, okay, no problem. And then I go on about my day. There's no, there's no need for me to try to convince them to do something they just don't want to do. You know, Abe, uh, so something that we talked about, you know, we talked about the complexity of the ballot and all these different races. And I imagine uh, Dwayne's experience is a lot like other voters because you're not sure, you know, with judgeships and things like that, you're, maybe you're not quite sure who to vote for or what, what these judges' records are. But I also think, you know, in Florida, we've got a number of constitutional amendments on the ballot this year. Uh, probably the most important is one that would raise the, the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Absolutely. You know, it, it, ra- it raises it kind of gradually, it starts at $10 an hour, adds a dollar per year uh, to 2026, uh, getting it up to $15 an hour. Um, there's also a citizenship question. That's Amendment 1, you know, a citizenship requirement to vote, which is kind of an, um, an odd one in a sense, because you do need to be a citizen to vote. Um, so that one's a little bit trickier. Um, and then, uh, Dwayne, I'm kind of curious to get your take on Amendment 3 as well, looking at sort of going from a, a closed primary system where you have to be registered with or, you know, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party to vote in the, those primaries to having a top two primary. You know, is that something that you are getting a lot of um, education on? Are you getting a lot of, you know, ads about it? Or is that anything that, you know, people are talking about in, in your circles? Um, honestly, no, my circles haven't, no one's really been talking about amendment three, as far as the impact it's going to have on us. Um, so I would have to, I would have had to go out of my way to research it. And even still, I'm not quite, um, sure what the impact is. Should it pass? Should it not pass? Um, I know it's a, we get to, um, open primaries for the state office. Yes. Voting for amendment three. I don't know the impact it would have, so I'm a bit unclear on it. So what Amendment 3 would do is um, all of the candidates, whether they're Republican, Democrat, whatever, in a primary, would all run on the same ballot. So you could go in and if there's a primary, we have a closed primary system here in Florida, where if you want to vote in the Democratic primary, you have to be a registered Democrat. Democrat. If you want to vote in the Republican primary, you have to be a registered Republican. This would put all of the, the, the primary candidates on the same ballot. And the flip side of that is you could end up with some races where um, two Republicans uh, advance to the final ballot or two Democrats advance to the final ballot, because that's the way it's played out in other states that have adopted it. Places like I think uh, Louisiana has it, uh, California, Washington state. Uh, that's a pretty common occurrence where you'll end up with two people from the same party on the general election ballot. Looking at it that way, then I think to guarantee fairness, I think we shouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't vote yes on, on Amendment 3 just because keeping it that way, I know at least both parties will be represented as opposed to taking the chance that only one party gets represented um, come the final, the final vote. We're talking about the 2020 election with uh, Abe Abaraya of WMFE in Orlando and Dwayne Ron Sharp, who is a student at St. Petersburg College, and uh, he is a new citizen of the U.S. Dwayne, we got a question. Um, somebody um, had was curious about um, maybe some of the information that you're getting, uh, either that you're seeing or maybe through your friends. Um, and they're, they want to know if you're familiar with some of the 20, uh, some of the disinformation uh, that was prevalent in the in the presidential election in 2016, and are you worried at all about um, trusting what you what you see for yourself or hear from your friends that it's that it's true and that it's not disinformation or fake news? Uh, relatively concerned with it, yes, just because there's 
two sides to every story. And most of this information now I take with a grain of salt. And I'll ask um, groups of different groups of friends to see if they are familiar with the, the information as it was just given to me or if they know something different about the same topic. Um, but I am, I am aware that there has been um, great disin disinformation um, being passed out over the last few years. So I'm not picking, I, said, no, I don't take a headline and then run with it. Um, I take it, I look at it, and I try to make sure that before I repeat this to someone, is it accurate? Uh, and in that, I'll either try to look it up online if I, if I can, or I'll ask someone I know that is more involved politically. I'm like, hey, is this accurate? Before I go and, and mention it to, to another, another colleague or another classmate. Abe, we've seen. Thank you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, Abe, we've we've seen some disinformation crop up here in, in Florida in the last few months, uh, particularly among uh, or targeting, I should say, um, um, uh, Hispanic voters in South Florida uh, from some conservative outlets. Uh, you know, spreading spreading misinformation about Democratic candidates and about uh, about Joe Biden in particular. Yeah, and that's that's kind of an interesting um, demographic thing that's happening there because we do have uh, in South Florida, uh, there's the, you know, you have a lot of of, of different groups that have come from uh, Colombia or from parts of different parts of South America versus coming from Cuba, versus uh, in here in Central Florida, you, we've got a large uh, group coming from Puerto Rico, uh, particularly after the hurricane. So. Um, seeing some of the disinformation campaigns targeting um, those groups down in South Florida, that, that is definitely, um, it's, it's, I shouldn't say it's surprising because it really isn't, but it, it does kind of play into what's going on with the demographics there where they're trying to take a little bit of a, a chip at some of the demographics that, you know, have historically maybe leaned more towards the Democratic side that they're, they're hoping to take a chip away at that and, and sort of uh, use the the issues that have been happening in South America with some of the uh, more socialist uh, regimes down there. So the, the other kind of um, disinformation that we're seeing too, uh, that, that a lot of the election people I talk to are, are worried about isn't necessarily that it would be um, intentionally disinformation, just because we do have 67 counties in Florida that have different um, structures in place. Uh, so some of them can already be early voting now. Some of them, you know, they have to wait, or they, they have chosen to wait until closer to the election on the, the 24th on Saturday, where they're at that point, they have to start doing early voting. But, you know, and, th and then you also look at all the different states where um, the way ballots are, are cast and counted are different. So people may be sharing information that's accurate for where they're at. But if it if it comes across on a social media feed, um, you know, to someone in a different state or in a different time zone, even then you, you start running into problems there. Uh, and, and so that's, that's another avenue that, you know, the, the election supervisors are, are, are concerned about as well. Picking up on that, uh, Dwayne, have you, um, have you decided how you're going to vote or you, have you, have you requested a, a mail-in ballot or are you going to go vote early or are you going to vote on, on the day? Uh, I'm going to go vote early. Um, I wanted, I, I made the decision to go in and vote just because it's my first election. And even though we are in some um, troubling times here with um, COVID-19, I still wanted at least my first voting experience to be the full thing where I go in line, I get in the booth. Um, and I understand that might not be all that wise because of what's going on in the world right now, but I wanted my first, my first voting experience to be a proper voting experience. Have you heard, uh, have you heard anything from, from the, from the Biden campaign or the Trump campaign that, that specifically speaks to you as a, as a Jamaican American or as a Caribbean American? Particularly in that regard, no, as, um, what speaks to me is more of, a being a black man in America, and I'm specifically referencing the presidential debate or the vice presidential debate as well, both of them actually. Um, comments made by both the president and the vice president led me to believe that it was easier for them to deny it than to, to, sit, to disapprove of it. 
um, in regards to any kind of systemic injustice that has been more prevalent over the last few years. Instead of, and this is just my take, this is just what I saw, what I interpreted, instead of saying, cut it out, this is wrong, this isn't the America we're trying to build, um, we're told it doesn't exist. At least that's what I got out of it. So these are, these are systemic problems. Um, do you think that if uh, Joe Biden's elected in four years from now, at the end of his term, that we're going to see any real progress with, with issues related to, uh, to black communities, to incarceration, the school to prison pipeline, et cetera? I, I feel we'll see some, it just might not be um, very substantial. This system wasn't built overnight, so we won't be able to, to fix it, so to speak, in four years. It would take time, it would take uh, well-laid plans, it would take um, officials to follow through on those plans, stick to those plans, and make, take, make check marks as the groundwork progresses but I don't think four years would be enough. I think it would be a good start. Uh, we got a question, Abe, from Joanne in Tampa, and this, this gets back to, to one of the early points that, uh, that Dwayne Ron made. Uh, what will it take to get elected officials to talk to each other rather than attack each other? Uh, it's really hard to say. I, I wish I had an answer for that. Um, right. You know, we, we know that and when you're talking about political advertising, that the negative political ads, the the attack ads, at, at least with those kinds of um, campaigns, you know, there there's a, a, historically there's been a tradition of okay, if you're doing well in the polls, then you can kind of back off and not run negative attack ads because negative attack ads do turn some people off, and you know it's easier to take the higher road if you're behind then you're running attack ads. And, and the reason being, you know, you're playing on, generally speaking, <clears throat> the, the emotion you're going after is fear. And if you start triggering fear in people, then that is a very actionable emotion for them from like a, just a pure psychology perspective. And so, you know, you see these negative attack ads that nobody likes, nobody, you know, I shouldn't say nobody, political operatives, you know, are, are working on them and getting paid to do them. But very few people are like, oh, I love seeing these negative ads, you know, all over TV and, and on billboards and on airwaves, you know, that most people it's turned off on it, but they do unfortunately work. Now, if you're talking about how, you know, governing uh, and how to get people, um, you know, on both sides of the metaphorical aisle to work together, you know, there, there's a lot of discussions about the way our, our election systems are set up and, and how districts are carved out um, that, you know, tend to be, you know, some of it's the, the, the way the districts are drawn that you tend to, you know, that, um, you know, it's a little bit of gerrymandering that still exists. Uh, some of it is um, purely the way people have tended to live, you know, that the people who are living in urban areas have tended to be more, on the progressive side and people who are living in more rural areas have, have tended to be more on the conservative side. And, and so you see that in, in the boundaries. And so what the end result of that is that the people who are in office, if their biggest concern is getting reelected, um, if they're in a safe district, then the biggest issue is not necessarily going to be an opponent from the opposite side. It's going to be someone who will be from their own party, you know, going further to the left or further to the right of them. And so when that's the incentive, then there's less incentive. You're, you're more worried about the political base that's going to be voting. And so if, as we've talked about, this sort of team mentality is there and the fear is that, you know, by working with the other side, that that gives ammunition for someone from my own party to say, hey, this, this guy is, is, you know, He's been working with the the opposition, and so that's why you shouldn't elect him and, and let him go back. And so that's kind of the bigger issue that you know that there have been some efforts underway to try and get you know the districts to be more representative and to to sort of handle some of those bigger issues. But it's really difficult um, just with the political landscape that we have right now and the situation we have to to make politicians have an incentive to 
uh, get together and work and not just obstruct and wait for hopefully a, a change in, in, you know, party power leadership structures. Dwayne, what do you think it would take to get uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle to work together? Uh, to stop thinking about how this would help the party and think about how it would help the people, all the people. It, it, I, I know that they are both, both parties are working individually to do what they think is best for the American people. I think that because they're working kind of one side, like one team is working by themselves, the other team working by themselves. I don't think that they're able to capture all of the, um, fill in all of the gaps um, that would come about with their plan, so to speak. Something that the Republican Party would consider something the Democratic Party might not consider. Um, what can I use in this? I, I, no, no great example comes to my head right now, but I don't know that they would be able to work together properly without first focusing completely on the American people instead of, I guess, weaponizing the American people. It, that, that's guess. a very interesting way of, of looking at it too, just because it, it kind of gets to the entire heart of why is someone running for an office, which is a difficult question to, to really get someone to answer. But, you know, there's the state of the, if you're looking at politics and the reason why you're, you're wanting to run for an office as I, you know, want to serve the people that I'm in my community with, you know, the people that voted for me or the people who didn't, you know, that, that are, that I am representing in office and, and that's why I'm getting at it. And, and I'm, I'm looking at this as something that um, is more of a, in line with a sacrifice, then you might, then, then that uh, mindset is going to lead towards, okay, well, if I'm working for everyone around me, you know, that's in my district or in my state, then I'm more willing to compromise with someone who might be of a different party or might have different, we might disagree on how to solve a problem, but we both agree that we want to solve a problem one way or another. Um, and, and the other mindset being the more cynical, if I'm elected, therefore the reason I'm running is to get reelected. If that's the main thing that you're looking for, then the incentives kind of don't align with the people that you're, you're representing. I think if you look on the local level too, you might find more uh, commonality. Uh, if you look at city governments or county governments, you might find people working across party lines more than you would at the state or federal level, just because there's more of an immediate need with those types of governments than you have with the state government or federal government. Uh, we heard from uh, Dwayne Ron Sharp, a, a student at St. Petersburg College and a first time voter, also WMFE reporter Abe Avaria. Gentlemen, thanks very much for uh, joining us tonight. Thank you. Thanks. That was WUSF's Bradley George hosting our Facebook Live show, The State We're In, earlier this week. To watch the show, go to The State We're In Facebook page. Be sure to like the page, leave comments on our stories, and let us know how we can help your voice be heard. There's also a State We're In discussion forum. Share your thoughts there with your neighbours from the region. The State We're In is produced in partnership with America Amplified, an initiative from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting using community engagement to inform local journalism. And coming up next, Amy Coney Barrett is a step closer to a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court after Republicans in the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to advance her nomination. We'll check in with Professor Lewis Varelli, who teaches constitutional law at Stetson University, about the nomination process itself and what comes next. That's when we return. Stay tuned. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Amy Coney Barrett is a step closer to a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court after Republicans in the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to advance her nomination. The vote this morning came up early after Democrats on the committee boycott the vote. They said Barrett would do damage to health care, reproductive freedoms and the ability to vote. And they noted the vote on Barrett's nomination comes even as Americans are voting in the presidential election. Barrett is expected to be confirmed by the Senate, and if she does, it will be one of the fastest confirmations in the history of the Supreme Court. Well, joining me to talk about this nomination process during a highly polarised presidential election is Louis Varelli. He's a professor of law at Stetson University College of Law, where one of his specialties is constitutional law. Professor Varelli, welcome back to Intersection. Thank you for having me. 
So you joined us back in September for a conversation about the nomination process, um, and that was before the president had nominated Amy Coney Barrett. Um, what's your take on on that kind of last month the, from from go to woe? Well, so I think the complicated part about this is that, of course, what we want to talk about once we meet Judge Barrett are her qualifications. And to be perfectly frank, she is qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. That, that question is, is relatively easy to answer. We can take lots of um, issue either way with her ideology, her approach to judging, whether we think she will be the kind of justice that best represents the American people or um, comes out the way she should in certain cases. But in terms of her credentials and qualifications, she's qualified. But what we can't lose sight of here is the circumstances under which she became the nominee. And really, that can only be understood um, when we compared to the situation four years ago when Chief Judge Merrick Garland was nominated by President Obama about um, three and a half months, four months farther away from the election than Judge Barrett was. And Senator McConnell refused to even entertain that nomination, let alone have a hearing and vote on Judge Garland. He waited to the election. The problem with that is you have the Senate changing the rules of the same game to suit its interests, and that has permanent, well, at least decades-long consequences for the court. So Democrats' boycott today is about that, and I would suggest that's the most important issue for the American people at least in terms of the nomination and confirmation process. Um, Judge Barrett's nomination cannot be understood in a vacuum. It has to be thought of um, in the context of what happened four years ago to Chief Judge Garland. Is it fair then to Judge Barrett in some ways? I mean, do, do, uh, is, is what you're saying that the kind of politics around this has kind of um, you know, muddied the waters a bit? So no matter, even if it wasn't Judge Barrett, no matter who it was who was nominated, it would be hard to just take it, take her qualifications at face value because of the, the circumstances surrounding the nomination and that whole process. That's exactly right. right? So in some ways, the, what, what I think is one of the most important issues about this confirmation has nothing to do with Judge Barrett personally. Um, and it's not her fault that these things happen this way. This is entirely a choice by President Trump and Senator McConnell to, to rush through a confirmation before the election. Now, of course, they have the power to do that. But I use the word power specifically because having the power to do something does not mean that it's the right thing to do. And I think it is not the right thing to do after the choice was made by the same people, or at least the same senators in 2016, to do the opposite when the, when the choice before them was one they wouldn't have made. Right? Chief Judge Garland would not have been McConnell's, Senator McConnell's choice, so he chose to do nothing and let that nomination sit for six months and then ultimately wither after the election. He did exactly the opposite in this case. And that's the problem, um, not, as you say, um, whether Judge Barrett um, should, be, um, should, be quali- should be considered qualified to sit. Well, what about the, the boycott itself? How unusual is that? And I, I feel like, you know, there are, we are being hit with a fire hose of news and it's, it's hard to separate some of these stories out because we're, you know, the, the new headlines come so thick and fast these days. But, uh, I mean, ha- having sort of watched some of these processes play out, how strange is it for one side of the uh, judicial, you know, the ju- judicial nominating committee to say we're, we're, not, we're not taking part in this, we're, we're boycotting, we're protesting? Well, first I'll say to the extent that anyone um, also feels like there's a fire hose of news, I agree with them. And I spend a lot of time thinking about these things, and I am in a similar situation. So it is not... It is, not, it is not a flaw for someone to feel like these things are coming faster than they can handle them. Um, I don't have uh, statistical information for you for how often this has happened, but what I, can, what I can say about the boycott is that it is indicative of exactly the sort of political situation that Senator McConnell's choice created. So by deciding to go forth with Judge Barrett's confirmation before the election, or more to the point, to ha- to um, progress President Trump's nominee within a little more than a month before we know if President Trump will be the next president, creates attention and is the kind of raw exercise of power where the only response for Democrats really is to not take part in it or to go along. Um, going along might suggest that they think what Senator McConnell's done is okay. They do not think that, and I think there's a good reason to think that it isn't okay. So I think 
what you're seeing in the boycott is sort of a response to the kind of decision that Senator McConnell made. He made a, a political calculation that is a raw exercise of power that is inconsistent with the norms of the Senate, or at least as they've been developed over decades. That move by Senator McConnell was met by something um, reasonably dramatic by the Democrats because there wasn't really much other choice. They couldn't win, um, but they did want to de- demonstrate to the American people that they think this process is inherently flawed. I can't think of any other way to really do that um, besides taking a procedural stand like this. Mm-hmm. If you think about this nomination process, and as I said, it's, it will be one of the swiftest, uh, just you know, a month from nomination to confirmation, if, as we expect, that confirmation happens. Um, do you feel like we got enough of a look at uh, Judge Barrett and, and you know, did, were the American people given, afforded enough of a glimpse of you know, what kind of justice she may be to even, you know, make the process valid in some ways? Like, would, would it have been better to have more time to, to consider some of the, the issues and, and for questioning and that kind of thing? Right. Well, I think there are three short things I can say about that. The first is that um, we did not learn much about Judge Barrett's views um, on the law that we didn't already know, and that was by design. Right? So um, Judge Barrett, like her predecessors in that seat, right? So she's not alone in this, mm-hmm. um, said very little about the kind of justice she would be um, under the guise that she's um, ethically prohibited from doing that, which I don't, I don't think there's a very good argument for that, and we can talk about that later if we want to. Um, that is a problem of the confirmation process in general, number two. Um, we have developed this process in a way where justices are, future justices are discouraged from saying anything meaningful about the kind of justice they will be, um, and we allow them to take that stance. They're not pressed on that. And the third thing is that it really didn't matter, right? I mean, we had public statements from, I believe, all of the relevant members of the uh, Judiciary Committee, but if not, um, we certainly had enough public statements by Republican um, senators that they were going to vote for the nominee before they knew who the nominee was. Mm -hmm. So Senator McConnell made very clear that whoever the nominee was, was going to be voted on and confirmed as soon as possible, hopefully before the election. And it looks like it will end up being before the election. So I think that's maybe the most telling thing, right? The decision to confirm was made before the nominee was chosen, which does seem um, at least facially problematic. Well, well, let me pick up on that point you made, Professor Varelli, about uh, judicial nominees, you know, nominees to the Supreme Court, really being sort of prevented from from sharing much about the kind of justice they would be. What what do you think could change? What could be changed to make that process more transparent or give people a better idea of of the kind of um you know rulings they may make or or the kind of how they the role they'll play on the Supreme Court? I think there's two things. I think um I'm, and they're both sort of nebulous, but I think they they could help. One is to try to educate the public better on what the Supreme Court actually does. This narrative has developed, and Chief Justice Roberts took advantage of this when he was being confirmed. And I don't mean to say he did it nefariously, but he, he took the position when he was being confirmed that justices are like umpires. Mm-hmm. Uh, judges are like umpires. They're calling balls and strikes in a game. They're just following the rules and applying them to the facts. That's overwhelmingly not true at the Supreme Court because the cases are too complicated for that. If the cases were simple enough to just apply the law as it was written, to the set of facts presented to the judges, the justices, then they would have very little to do. Um, and very few cases should even reach that court because they would be resolved satisfactorily by the lower courts who are more than capable of doing that analysis. Mm-hmm. These cases are complicated. They require a lot of judgment and explanation and reason. So justices are doing more than I think the American public understands they're doing because we have this narrative of judges as umpires or as judges. It's just I just apply the law. Mm-hmm. Well, the law isn't always clear, and in fact, most of the time at the Supreme Court, or at least the cases people hear about, the high-profile cases, it's not clear. And that's something that we can use then in turn to go to the second thing, to pressure um, all nominees to acknowledge and to say, listen, we understand that that's not true. It is not as simple as you're describing it. What You did this in this past case, or you've taken this position in the past, or you've heard of this existing precedent. What do you think of it? Mm-hmm. Having an opinion about a prior, a prior decision by the Supreme Court 
is not the same as talking about how I would rule in a future case. Um, Justice Scalia, um, Judge Barrett's mentor, by her own explanation, um, wrote an opinion in the early 2000s where he said a nominee or a, a candidate for a judgeship should have a view of the law already. Otherwise, that would make, we'd, one, we'd wonder about their qualifications to be a judge. Mm-hmm. So I think educating the public and, cre- and sort of changing the perspective that judges shouldn't be blank slates, they're not blank slates, and in fact, finding out what they think about the law is relevant to their qualifications because they're going to be deciding difficult cases that are not as simple as calling balls and strikes. This may be veering a little bit into speculation, so I'll just preface this question with that. But, uh, I mean, given the kind of politically polarized environment we're in, do you see the, the nomination process changing anytime soon? Like next time we have a vacancy on the Supreme Court, are you optimistic that, that we will get a better sense of who the next nominee may be? No, I, I am not optimistic, and I'm not optimistic because the – Ultimately, the impetus, ultimately, all the things I talked about have to manifest themselves in the Senate. And now that the Senate doesn't face a filibuster for Supreme Court justices, and that that phenomenon happened around Justice Gorsuch's confirmation until prior to Justice Gorsuch, the Senate had needed 60 votes to confirm the Supreme Court justice. Mm-hmm. So invariably, some members of both parties had to be involved to get to 60 in almost every case. Now that we don't do that anymore... And now that the American public has been sort of educated to believe that the Supreme Court is part of the political spoils that come with elections, even if we didn't wait till the election to to nominate the most recent Supreme Court justice, but now that we have this story about the Supreme Court being part of the political spoils of democracy, the Senate is incentivized to continue to use the court for political gains. That's not unusual. That's been happening for a long time. But when you make the process easier, in other words, you make it a bare majority as opposed to a 60 vote requirement, you just encourage whoever's in the majority of the Senate to do that. The great hope is split government mm-hmm. over the long term. Right? So none of these things work when the Senate and the president are from the same are from different parties or they're less likely to work. But I don't think that's necessary. I think what we what we should hope for and what we should encourage our senators to do is to be more measured about this, to not treat this as a way to win an election, but to treat it as a way to thoughtfully maintain a Supreme Court that is representative of the people it governs. I, I guess, um, you know, the, the, the rationale, like the, the kind of the reason for the Supreme Court, one, one of its purposes is to, to act as a kind of a check and balance on government, right? Do you see that maybe changing a little bit, or is, is that sort of role weakened a little bit with the, this notion of the Supreme Court as, as you put it, one of the political spoils of an election or, or that political process? I have optimism in the sense that I think that justices once on the Supreme Court take their role very seriously. Mm-hmm. I have every reason to believe that. And that they they do not consider themselves part of the political process um, once they are seated. It doesn't mean they are not political people, but they don't have political viewpoints. So that maybe those political viewpoints influence their decisions, but it means they're not part of the active political process. And they don't think of themselves that way, and they don't act that way mm-hmm. for the most part, which is a good thing. So the, the integrity of the court as it sits I don't think is necessarily the problem, but the choices that the Senate is making – are not helping, and they are giving the American people real reason to question the integrity of these, not the integrity of the individuals, the integrity of the process when we see things like changing the rules based on the political party of the president who's nominating, and when we see senators say, I can't wait to confirm the nominee before they know who that nominee even is. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the Senate is not helping. I do think that the justices once ensconced in life tenure on the court um, do take understand their role and take it seriously. Um, so that is at least some ground for optimism. You talked last time uh, you are on this program, Professor Varelli, about the danger of assuming that this election may wind up in the hands of the US Supreme Court, but just kind of given how the last month has gone, do you sort of still hold to that idea? Yes. 
I am still optimistic that the Supreme Court will not be involved in resolving the election, but I don't have any professional basis for that. Mm -hmm. So I don't um, – that's going – whether or not that actually happens is not a question of law, right? It's a question of um, politics and people's choices about whether to bring suit. The best way to, to avoid a situation like that is to have a robust, thorough vote that people are – willing to wait for, right? So we've seen lots of, of reports mm -hmm. that a delay in a state reporting its results does not indicate that there's a problem with the results. And that's very important for people to understand, right? Pennsylvania is not even counting its absentee ballots until election day. Right. And it's going to take a while. Right. And, so, and in fact, the, the U.S. Supreme Court just ruled on, on something to, to that very extent, right? They, they, they approved an extension on, on the counting of those votes. That's right. Um, they allowed, I believe, um, up to nine days for those ballots to be received as long as they're postmarked by Election Day. Mm -hmm. um, so we should trust our election officials because there's every indication that they're doing a good job, even if this election takes longer because of the effect of COVID-19 on voting and the number of absentee ballots. It is troubling to me, though, that, for example, in that recent um, voting case, the Supreme Court split four to four mm -hmm. on whether to allow a state to make changes to its timing of counting because of the pandemic. The Supreme Court's involvement in these election cases is troubling to me because it does often split on partisan lines, at least in terms of the party of the president that nominated the justice. Mm -hmm. And lots of these cases are very close. I would like to see the court um, be more unified in its position about how these elections should be run and allowing states to have the ability to run their election in a way that they think is responsible in light of the pandemic. And in several situations, the court hasn't done that, and that concerns me. Mm -hmm. Well, Louis Ferrelli teaches law at Stetson University College of Law. One of his specialties is constitutional law. Professor Ferrelli, thank you so much again for joining us and sharing your insights into this rather unusual nomination process and, and what comes next. I appreciate you having me. Thanks very much. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find archived shows on our website, wmfe.org intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. 